Hello everyone and welcome back to the Film Score Podcast. I know my schedule, my release schedule has been a little off recently. Had a busy month and a couple scheduling issues that threw things off a little bit. I think that might continue into the early part of April as well, but stick with me. And luckily there is enough back episodes that if you're really missing me, you can go back and hear me again. And of course, here's some great guests. Today, my guest is Anne Catherine Dern. You might know Anne through many of her really good, more traditional orchestral scores, particularly for more family films, animated films, some fantasy-esque films. Probably the biggest ones are the Klaus family films. And her latest is actually something very different. It's a bit of a more horror film, horror action, I suppose, that has a far more electronic textural score. So we spend some of the interview talking about that score, but really talking about the lines between orchestral and electronic film music, or traditionally orchestral, balancing those worlds, moving in between them, and Anne's journey and kind of where her interests lie. And then we move into some far more heavier topics, partially stemming from the recent Guardian article about issues in the film-composing workplace, and Anne's very open and candid thoughts on that and responses to it. It's a, especially that part is a really interesting conversation, I don't know, very illuminating. I think it makes for an insightful and educational listen. Of course, you can find out more about Anne on her website, on her social media, where she's very active, and of course, her YouTube channel, and naturally, you can do the same for me. Now, like I said, the next episode might be out in three weeks. The schedule's a little bit off right now, but April is promising to be a very big month, so keep your eyes and ears open. But until then, sit back and enjoy. Anne, thank you so much for joining me today. How have you been? I've I've been good. I've been busy, but um, <laughs> good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you told me that you had just, were you mixing and then delivering something like as of this morning? Yes. <laughs> we delivered something to the mix last night, the whole movie to the final mix. And then um, I was also supervising another mix for a game up until this morning. So I literally have been done with my projects as of like an hour ago. <laughs> Jeez. At least you had a a few minutes to catch your breath before jumping right on this to talk to me. And make coffee, yeah. (laughs) Of course, more important. (laughs) So with something like that, you know, you have two projects in various stages. I assume it's not really like a a more relaxing process where you're like, all right, I've just got a couple things to get out. I've got to get this by tonight, so I've got time. I assume it's more of like a, I just need to get this out. Like, we've been spending however much time on it. Like, let's finish this thing. Yeah. It's pretty much like that. By the end of the project, you really kind of, let's just get it done, get it finished, get it out there. Especially, you know, they're starting the mix this morning, so there wasn't really a lot of time to mess Mm. around anymore. And things got a little chaotic towards the end. You know, deadlines are deadlines. There's the creative phase, and then there's the we have to deliver this phase. After that, once the chaos, at least to an extent, kind of dies down the next day or the next week or something... Do you ever start thinking like, ooh, I wish we'd have done this instead or done that? Or is it like for you, 
it's delivered and it is only harmful to start thinking about how you could have done things differently. Yeah, I don't start thinking about projects that are done because it's done. You know, yeah. it's I did the best I could in the moment and usually I'm mostly happy with my work. There are cues where sometimes while I'm doing them or while I'm delivering them, I'm thinking, oh, I wish I had a little more time on this. But as long as the bulk of the work is acceptable to me and I like it, I don't stress out about individual cues that may not have been, you know, 100% what I wanted them to be. So yeah, I don't stress out about it later on because what's the point? Also, by the time the movie comes out, this movie isn't coming out for several months. So by that point, I already have done two more movies and probably <laughs> another video game and all that. So I'm like, by the time it comes out, I'm I'm already like, I've moved on. <laughs> With that in mind, like, because obviously it's not like you finish a project and it's not like it's hitting theaters in two weeks. With that much time in between, when you actually get to see like the final film and having done music in between, do you ever like watch it or hear it and like have the the sounds almost sound new to you just because of the time that's passed? Part of the reason that I ask is I had a, a friend that was listening to my podcast and he just started and he mentioned something I was saying in like one of my first episodes like two and a half years ago. And I'm like, I'll take your word that I said that, but no recollection of it whatsoever. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's also sometimes, sometimes there's really one and a half years between us wow. finishing the movie and it coming out. Then it's kind of weird because creatively I've moved on, mm. you know, and my sound is different and what how I like to write and orchestrate is different. So all of a sudden it's this weird, oh yeah, I did that, I guess. I, I used to do that thing that I'm no longer doing. And then it's just kind of weird to do press for it because it no longer represents what I'm doing right now. It's like, yeah, that was me one and a half years ago, but that's not me right now. So it's then kind of strange to kind of revisit that. And people ask very specific questions about the music and the writing style and theory behind it. And I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> that was so long ago. I don't know what I did. <laughs> that has to be... Nice in one sense, though, not not those specific questions where you're like, I, I have no idea, but being able to have that much time pass and then kind of getting like a almost real time example of how you used to be, how things have changed, and then kind of being able to judge your your progress as a musician, as a composer. Yeah, I don't generally like judge my past mm. composer self in a harsh way because I'm like, well, that was two years ago and now right. is now. But it's kind of nice. I always recommend this to people because you don't notice it in real time, how you change as a composer or how, you know, much better your production value gets or how your writing changes or improves. I always recommend look back at what you did five years ago. Look back at what you did two years ago because the contrast is going to be much bigger than looking at your project from three months ago because that gap is not going to be huge. But looking several years back, you're like, oh, yeah, I don't really do like that anymore. I actually learned so many mixing things and mock-up things and writing things, and I just know better now. And that's kind of nice to see because you can see your progress and see how you've improved over time because sometimes you get so stuck in the moment that you don't see it and you feel like, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm stuck, I don't really improve. And then looking at your past work, you're like, Actually, I did improve. It's just such a slow, gradual process. 
in these experiences, were there any like particular specific or notable aspects where you were watching a, a film or seeing the final product, uh, however, you know, many months or a year plus later and had something specific going like, oh, I have changed so much in like this regard or this aspect? Yeah, I mean, production-wise, I always improve, especially in between projects. I do a lot of um, research and improve my template, and then the next project is going to sound better. So over time, the gap between the production value grows a lot. And then something writing-wise that I've very much noticed is I've scaled back a lot. I used to very much overwrite a lot of stuff. I used to very much have all these flourishes and all this stuff going on that didn't have to be there really and then looking at that work I'm like did I really need all these runs and all these trills and all this stuff that was in this queue or could I have done with half the amount of notes and said the same thing and I think most composers develop that over time that you can say more with less sometimes you don't need that many notes it's at the beginning of your career you really just want to show off especially you know <laughs> you went to conservatory and you're like I know theory I know orchestration techniques. And then you just want to show them all off in your projects, whether it fits or not. And if the production lets you, you just kind of go all out on that. Especially if you get an orchestra, you're like, yes, let's use it. Instead of kind of scaling back and looking at the picture and going, maybe it needs less than that. Maybe it's not about your composer ego showing off what you can do, but it's really more about the storytelling aspect. And now that I've written my fair share of music over time, I don't feel the need to show off as much anymore. I feel like if I can say it with two chords, it's going to be two chords. It's interesting because I've, I've actually heard that from quite a few people where like a difficult thing and something that takes time is that restraint can often be better. And do you find that not just in restraining, like, the amount of notes in a particular cue that you're writing, let's say, but also in when music is or isn't necessary in a film at all? Uh, yeah, I've also started conversations a lot more. Because at the beginning of your career, you're kind of just, you know, you go with whatever the music editor said or what the production says where there should be music. And now I'm making it a lot more of a conversation you know when I think a scene works without music I will let them know I don't want it to come off as me wanting to do less work yeah. for the same pay <laughs> but I will make that a conversation and if they insist I will you know write music for the whole scene but sometimes I'm like you know this doesn't have to be a five minute music cue I think we can just come in way later than what you have mm -hmm. here especially if the acting is good and the direction is good and it works then sometimes I'm like, do we need this here? Which at the beginning of my career, I would never have done. I wouldn't have been brave enough to have that conversation, but also I would have used every opportunity to write more music <laughs> just for the sake of writing more music. And so now I'm a little more like, does it have to be 90 minutes wall-to-wall -wall music or can we do with less? Interesting. And I mean, it's, it's something that I notice on films. You'll, you know, you watch a film like All Quiet on the Western Front it's a two, two and a half hour film that has pretty, it's pretty restrained even when the music's, even when the music's there, it's restrained, but like there's not a lot of music in total. And then you'll get obviously plenty of other films where it feels like it's wallpapered on in every scene, even in the backgrounds. What are some of the responses when you're talking with a music supervisor, director, et cetera, about saying, you know what, we can 
pull back and have less music? It's usually a group decision. We usually just then look at the scene dry without any music and really try to look at, are, are we missing anything? Because at the end of the day, you should only have music in there when it really adds something mm. or it's really needed because the silence is awkward or it needs to take you from one scene to the other or something like that. But if the movie is good in general, I feel like it needs less music because you're not trying... A lot of the times we're trying to fix stuff with music. You know, if the acting wasn't on point, then we're like, all right, let's make it funnier with music because the jokes didn't land. Or, you know, if there's a romantic scene and the actors have zero chemistry, like, all right, we're going to put music under it. That's going to make it romantic. But I've had movies where the acting and the chemistry between the actors was so good that we were like, do we need this? Because they are funny. They're naturally funny. We don't need music here to make it funnier because it wouldn't make it any funnier than it already is. It wouldn't make it more romantic than it already is. And then it's also a question of realism. I mean, famously, Saving Private Ryan has very little music in it because they went for a more realistic approach. They wanted it to feel more real. And the moment you add Hollywood-style music to a movie, it's you know, a little more removed from reality. So that's another question in general about the film that I ask people. Mm. How real do you want it feel or do you want it to feel more fantasy, magical, or do you want it to feel more rooted in reality? Because that's also going to determine how much music is there going to be and what kind of music is there going to be. Interesting. And, and so do you think that view takes music for film beyond like simply a another narrative device that it, it's there just to like tell a story as well? I mean, I feel like we're generally entering a time where it's not just music because we're starting to really blend it a lot more with sound effects and blend it a lot more with the environment. I think this kind of started about 10 years ago, I want to mm -hmm. say, where we started to move further and further away from just traditional scoring, but really started to be like, okay, what can we really do here? Does it really have to be the old school thematic stuff? Or can we actually do something unique here that enhances what is there? And I think we're moving more and more into that, which is kind of interesting. I mean, there will always be traditional scoring for certain genres, but I think it's a more exciting way to look at movies, you know? Like, Interstellar would not be the same movie with a traditional score. It has a very specific tone, not just because of the direction, but also because of the score. Something I just watched, um, the latest John Powell score, um, what was it called? Don't Worry Darling. Yeah. It has a very specific thing. Like, it wouldn't work with any other movie. I think that's very interesting and a very, personally, that's kind of where I want to go more because I've done a lot of traditional scoring. <laughs> And you're very constrained in what you can do with the orchestra if you're going for the traditional approach. And I think it has its place specifically in animation and specifically in family entertainment. But I, yeah, I want to try and also go different places with music where you really blur the line between music and sound design. It's interesting you you mentioned that and particularly your interest in it because you know you can listen to your scores for the three Klaus family films. And they are very thematically based, what we would think of as like a, a traditional orchestral score. And then you listen to like 
your most recent score, The Devil Conspiracy, which still has melodic aspects to it, but then there's far more texture and interactions with what could be, you know, pure sound design as well. And it's like two polar opposite approaches. It is. And I'm enjoying that more and more because I love the orchestra. I think it's one of the most fantastic things in existence. The problem is orchestral music has been around for several hundred years. And so everything's been done. There's nowhere you can go. No matter how crazy you think you're going, someone's already done it. And so I think at the beginning of every orchestral composer's career, you know, we all listened to John Williams and, you know, those guys uh, when we were young and we're like, I want to do that. Yeah. And then we get some animation and some family style projects where we can do that and you kind of imitate your heroes for a while. And then you kind of branch out a little further and dive more into classical music and take textures from there and then... I started adding, um, you know, recorders and, and other random instruments to the orchestra. But all of that has been done. That's not something I came up with. That's been there, you know. And I started to get really bored with it. Maybe that sounds arrogant. <laughs> <laughs> but it started to be too comfortable, you know. I, I was like, I can do this kind of stuff in my sleep. And I don't really know where to go from here. I feel like I'm repeating myself a lot of the time and I feel like no matter where I go someone's already done it and it just doesn't feel new and yeah it was just starting to frustrate me a little bit because with the orchestra you will always be constrained to the acoustic instruments there's only so much they can do and you can change the lineups of course you can just be like all right what if we just get a huge orchestra with you know 10 harps and 20 cellos or something but that's also already been done before so i was like i don't know how to make this special you know and and not repeat something that someone has already kind of done and so yeah after 10 years i started to be like i started to talk to my manager i was like can we try and get other stuff because I've been doing a lot of family entertainment and it just feels like I'm not really developing as a composer. And so I started to write songs for every movie I was getting to kind of branch a little bit into songwriting because that was something I wanted to learn. And then I started to get more video games that were way more hybrid and way more synthy and more produced and, you know, were kind of playing around with sounds a lot more. Yeah, and then this horror movie came along and I was like, all right, Let's do it. And it was basically a 90% synth score. And I really had to learn that stuff. Not that I feel proficient in it at this point, but <laughs> <laughs> but it was new and it felt so freeing because there are no rules. You're not thinking about counterpoint. You're not thinking about anything traditional. You're not thinking about any limitations because there are no limitations. You can do whatever you want. I took acoustic instruments and pitched them differently and put reverbs and effects on them and started to pitch bend them and do stuff that naturally these instruments can't do and then mix that with synthesizers and all kinds of other stuff and it was so much fun because it was just pure creativity versus using theory and the orchestra and all that stuff it was just me sitting here and going oh that sounds cool and that sounds cool what if i combine the two and then what if i do this and what if i experiment with that and what if we pitch this down? And what if we send this through that reverb? And, you know, it was just trying things out and just being creative. The director also gave me a lot of time to do that mm. and to just 
we recorded electric guitar and then I was like what if we put these effects on here and then put it here and then mix that it was just a lot of experimentation that with the orchestra you just don't really get to do that way and I enjoyed that so much I told my manager after I was done I was like this was the most fun I've had in a while so let's get more of that stuff because I think that's pure creativity versus the orchestra stuff which I'm still gonna do right but more sparsely than I used to do it because that used to be my only thing and I don't want that to be my only thing anymore. Now, was there ever, when you started The Devil Conspiracy, was there like a, a hesitation on your part of, all right, I've been working my way towards this? It's not like you did pure orchestral stuff and then bam, like, here, do something synth instead. But even still, like, it, it's a new environment. So was there a hesitation or were you just like, I'm ready to go wild and sort of see what happens? Um, it was a mixed, it was mixed emotions because on one hand I was scared because it was completely not my comfort zone. It was, you know, I'd been doing something that I could do in my sleep, and now it was like, can I actually do this? <laughs> um, but it was also excitement, because I was like, at some point I have to come out of that bubble and do something else. And so this was the opportunity to do it. And I also, I immersed myself a lot into synth stuff, but I also got a synth designer on this, which I had never had before. Mm. Uh, her name is Callie Wang, and she also designed custom sounds that I needed and that I didn't know how to get. So yeah, there was just a lot of trying out a lot of new products that I had never bought before because I very much always bought orchestra-related stuff. And now I was like, okay, I need different plugins and I need different sounds and kind of dive into products that I've never used before. And that was just also kind of very inspiring to just play through the stuff and just be like, oh, okay, so if I do this, I can do that. And just learning. I, I knew I was going to do that gig, I think, half a year in advance. So I had a lot of time to kind of prepare gradually. So by the time we started, I was like, okay, I'm going to take some time. I took a lot of time with the opening sequence because it's, I think, six minutes long or something and was like, I'm going to have to get this right the mixture of choir and pipe organ and synthesizers and sound design and orchestra and all that. And if I get this right, we have the tone for the entire movie. So I worked on that sequence for, I want to say, two weeks, just finding exactly the sounds that go with it. And then sent that off and the director loved it. And then I was like, all right, now we do the rest of it. It's interesting how much of this is sounds like finding the right sounds or sounds that are interesting or appealing or, or exciting is that something that you've always had or that diving into this score in particular and moving away from things that are more purely orchestral has sort of ignited it was not something i was super interested i always liked listening to it but it was mm. not something i wanted to do from the start i always wanted to be an orchestral composer because that's how i got into this it was like you know the harry potter soundtracks and lord of right. the rings and you know the stuff that came out in the early 2000s but then once you've done enough scores where you've imitated those styles, you're kind of like, okay, where do I go from here now? Like, I got that out of my system. Then I moved on to trying to develop my own orchestral style a little bit. But then I was like, where do I go from here? And I think it was probably for a whole year. I was really frustrated. <laughs> I was talking to colleagues about it and to my manager. I'm like, I don't enjoy just doing this. I'm bored by myself. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> I'm bored by my own music and I'm bored by 
feeling so comfortable in this style now. And so it was kind of something that gradually came to mind. And then, yeah, this opportunity just came along right at the moment where I was thinking I need to go somewhere else. And then the director was like, here's something you could go somewhere else with that. And I was like, yep, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like it was perfectly timed then. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, in, in with that, it's it's like, obviously, you're not just in your first couple years of, of this and like really just getting your feet under you. But it kind of sounds like the path to find like your style. I like use that in quotes, use it loosely, at least for you. And, and, you know, maybe this is the case for most people or most composers is a constant journey for you. It's not like you've hit, okay, I found what I'm comfortable with, what I want to do. And like, I'll do variations on this for the next 20 years or 15 films or something. I think it's a journey for some composers. I think we all kind of start out imitating our heroes a little Mm. bit. And then once we get that out of our system, we kind of move on trying to really find our own thing. I think very few people at a very young age have their own particular sound. Some do, but I think that's not most of us. And I do admire composers that just are brave enough to not keep doing the same thing because there are a lot of composers that are writing the traditional score kind of thing, and they've been doing that since like the 70s and 80s, and they're still doing exactly that. That's a choice that you can do. But I think if I can't hear a difference between a score of theirs that was written this year versus a score that they wrote in 1980, then I'm like, what are you doing? Why are you not developing as a composer? It's like they got stuck in that thing that they did 40 years ago, and they're still doing it. And that's something I admire about composers like, you know, Hans Zimmer or John Powell and, you know, composers that aren't stuck in one thing. They do a thing. And they're famous for it. And then they're like, all right, now I'm done with it. Now we're moving on to the next thing. And then they have another phase where they try out new things and then set a new trend, basically, that everybody else is trying to imitate. And then they're already done with it and they move on to the next thing. And, you know, it's like you would not know that the person who wrote Driving Miss Daisy is the same guy that wrote Gladiator and is the same guy who wrote Interstellar. You wouldn't know. Like, if you played these scores to a person who doesn't know anything about it, they would not be like, yeah, that's the same composer. They think that's three different composers. And I find that exciting rather than just getting stuck in one thing and then not really going anywhere for the rest of my life. (laughs) Well, it seems partially, too, that your sound should be developing or changing at least to some extent simply because the nature of film is always changing. Pick any genre today, and the films in it are not the same as they were in that genre 40 years ago. So the music should not be the same either. I agree, and I also don't want to be stuck in one genre, because if I do the traditional scoring, it'll always be tied to either animation or family entertainment. It'll always be tied to something like The Klaus Family or Fearless or Leap or, you know those German kids movies that I've done, it'll always be tied to that. It's always going to be magical adventure scoring. And it has its place there. I enjoy doing it in that space. But I don't want to just be tied to that one genre of film and to that one type of audience. I want to score dramas and I want to score horror and I want to score action movies. And that's going to be requiring a different style and a different knowledge. And so if I want to be scoring those movies, then... 
I have to show that I can do that. So sometimes you just gotta step out and do other things in order to then eventually be working on the things you want to be working on. Yeah, that makes sense. Changing gears a little bit, but it also comes off of this is is sort of your like openness to talk about things like this and why you don't want to be doing the same sound. But then also like being open about broader topics in film and film music as well. And I think that's something that has certainly caught my attention because I th- a lot of people in the industry are maybe a little more reticent to say that, to speak openly about things. What is it that has gotten you comfortable to just put things out there like that, knowing that it's a, a, a bit of an outlier, at least in, in that community? I think it developed a little with my YouTube channel and the reactions I've gotten from colleagues and agents and, you know, people in this industry and also people outside of it and aspiring composers as well. Because I was very careful about that at first because mm. you don't want to step on anybody's toes and, you know, it's a very small community. Yeah. So you always want to be careful what you say and don't offend anybody and just that's why most people choose to keep their head down and not say anything because it's a small crowd of people but yeah gradually with my youtube channel at first i kept it just to technical stuff Mm -hmm. because that felt the safest thing to do and then i did one opinion piece i think it was about working for free when could you work for free when shouldn't you work for free like kind of different scenarios and I thought I was going to get a little bit of trouble because of that, but all the people that I thought were going to push back on it actually messaged me and were like, that's actually a really good video. I'm going to rethink certain things that I'm doing and I'm going to rethink how I articulate things. And I was like, oh, that's surprising. So apparently I have a very frank way of saying things, but as long as I make a compelling argument people aren't offended by it. And so I started to do more things. I started to talk about ghostwriting and in what cases that's okay and what cases it's not okay. And it also feels like it's currently discussed a lot, you know, especially, you know, the situation of composer assistants and, you know, we had the whole Me Too thing. So a lot of stuff that used to not be discussed is being discussed at this point. So I feel like I was just kind of part of that movement and it kind of emboldens everybody to say stuff but all of my stuff is very scripted out especially the opinion pieces I write those and then I sit on it and then I read through it a week later and I make changes and then I sit on it again and I read through it again there's a huge gap between me writing the initial Mm -hmm. script for the video and then recording the video and then still a lot of stuff ends up on the cutting room floor because I'm like nah I shouldn't have said that or I don't like the tone I said that in so I am very careful still but the positive reaction from the community at large has kind of emboldened me to say more things because apparently it's appreciated so I'm like okay (laughs) if I'm not getting cancelled then I guess I can do it the way that I'm doing it. <laughs> well, and I think it helps having it scripted and spending time on it rather than it being an in-the-moment emotional, like off-the-cuff yeah. rant about something. But you'd mentioned the Me Too side of things as well, and I think it was The Guardian that had an article on that maybe just last month, sometime maybe mid-February. I think for the most part I saw like very, and I want to use this carefully, like, positive reactions in the fact that it was being reported so openly 
but still some hesitancy towards the fact that almost everybody in the article was anonymous, you know, the, the perpetrators as well. And and so there's a thought I saw of like, well, it's, it's good this is getting out there, but the people doing that are still able to do that anonymously. And I saw other reactions that just having an article is not enough. And so I, I wanted to see what you thought about articles like that and, and what people should know, both like film music fans, younger composers, people who might not have an idea of what's behind the curtain a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I also try to draw back the curtain a little bit on my mm -hmm. channel. I have not addressed women's issues yet. I have something scripted out already, but that's one of those scripts that needs yeah. to go through a lot of versions. <laughs> I think it's good to have articles like that because, I mean, naming and shaming people does not usually work because then you just hit with libel lawsuits. And again, it's a small community, so it's not that hard to find out who talked. So, you know, you just don't want to get people in trouble because technically all of us are under NDA. So talking about internal things is, you know, it can get a lot of people in trouble. So you got to be careful with that anyway. But it's good to talk about these things. I think one weak point of the article, and also there was a previous article, I think, in Vanity Fair yeah. about this. I think one problem these articles have is that they conflate different issues because the article starts with harassment in the workplace towards women, but then it also moves very quickly into assistantships and how toxic work environments are harmful for everybody, which is a different issue from the first issue. And then it also very often goes into, you know, the financial side of the productions, how, you know, Streaming has kind of lowered budgets, lowered royalties, and how a lot of composers have to have to squeeze their workers now because budgets are lower. But that's again a completely different issue that you know needs to be addressed. Like I feel like in all of these articles, you basically have three different things that should be their own article because mm -hmm. there's a lot of problems that need addressing, but putting all of them into one article is not necessarily the most helpful thing because then usually by the end of these articles, I'm like, what was this article actually about? Like, what problem were we actually discussing? Because it feels like it was all kinds of different things. And the real women's problem, it actually wasn't discussing because harassment is a problem. Yes, uh, I've been the target of that myself, but that's the minority of situations. That does not happen with a lot of workplaces. That's like a handful of individuals causing problems. But the real women's issue was not actually discussed, which is why are we still not being hired despite having so much experience, you know? Why are we not considered for things? Why are men with less experience hired, but women with more experience are not hired? You know, all these kind. there's so many more issues in the hiring side of things. You know, why are women still not 100% represented by agents? Why do women not have access to the pitches? Why? There's a lot of questions that usually the Alliance for Women Film Composers mm -hmm. deals with. Equal access to opportunity. That is the real question. Why, why are there so many of us but so few of us are hired on studio-level productions. Why do we need twice the experience to be considered for the same things? You know, why is it when an A-list composer puts in a recommendation for a guy, the studio hires the guy, but the same composer can put in a recommendation for a woman, 
and they're not considering the woman without the A-lister attached. Why is that? You know, those are the questions we need to be asking here. And that probably should have been more the focus of the article, because that's the bigger issue that we're dealing with. Harassment is just one facet of the walls that we're facing. It's interesting. I don't know if, if these stats are from the AWFC or if they're from someone else, but it's it's every single year there are, are stats circulated of the percent of women scoring the top 100 grossing films of the year and, and things like that. And it'll be at like 2% last year. And oh, this year it's now 3%. And it's like, yeah, it's, it's nice that that's gone up. It means that uh, one more film has had a, a female <laughs> composer. But like, it's also an alarmingly low amount no matter what. And that's how all of those stats are. And it's interesting because I've, I've known about that for a while. And yet I haven't thought about, oh, why is that something that gets shared once a year on Twitter and otherwise is like not really talked about. But I mean, beyond the studio level and directors, and I don't know if this is a an issue for like the, the top A-list composers to, to try to help with as well, but like what are things that can actually be done to address that? It's less of a problem in the indie world, I find. Mm. You'll find a lot more women composers and also composers of color on indie productions that are not funded by the big studios. Also video games. There's way more diversity in video game composing than in film. It's tricky. You know, it's the people that are in charge. Um, I, I can see a lot of agents, composer agents, making more of an effort now to put more women on their roster. That has very much grown not to 50-50, but okay. They're making an effort to represent women, but then the agents can't do anything if the executives aren't going to actually hire the women. That continues to be a bit of a mystery to me because a lot of women are now coming up on... There's a lot of us, and a lot of us are coming up on a solid 10 years of experience with like 40 to 70 credits, which should be more than enough to be considered and has been enough in the past. If you look at the biographies uh, of the current A-listers and you look at how many credits and how many years of experience they had before they got their first big thing, it's usually around the 10-year mark and it's usually around this amount of credits. So why did they get those opportunities? And the women currently in that position are not getting those opportunities. That's the question to ask. And it might just be that we're still waiting for a changing in the guard at the mm. studios that maybe some executives need to retire and others need to take over for that change to happen. I don't know. I don't know what their internal discussions are. I know that we are all waiting. We're all pitching. We're all doing the work. And we're not yet seeing the benefit of having put in all the work. And so... It can be a little frustrating and discouraging over time because you're like, I've done everything that I was yeah. supposed to do. And it's kind of like that. It's a general millennial problem, I guess. <laughs> like, we've done everything we were supposed to do. And yet we're not reaping the benefits that we were promised. I don't have the answer to that. I think there needs to be more than lip service from the studios. Because they have all these diversity programs and all that stuff and giving people short films and stuff. But I'm like, give us the real work. We're ready. Give us the real thing. Don't just give us lip service and these farce programs that then lead to nothing else. Just so you can tell the press you made an effort. Like, good for you. But just give us the real work. Just consider us for the real things. And then 
actually let us have a shot. And yeah, that's not really like the statistics you were um, mentioning. I think they're from a Canadian institute. They do this every year. And sometimes our numbers even go down. I'm like, what have we been doing? (laughs) There's more of us now. And yet the amount of us getting hired for studio stuff is lower. It's like two steps forward, five steps back. At this rate, we're going to reach 50-50 probably in like 80 years. I don't know. (laughs) I do wonder as well if Hilder winning the Oscar, was it three or four years ago for Joker, seemed like a big moment. In a lot of ways, it was. But then I also wonder if something like that happening, like for some people, it's like, well, look, a, a woman won the Oscar for the best score. So like, of course, there's not really any issues because then beyond that, it's pretty much it. Yeah, I also wonder if, like, we were all really happy when she won, obviously. Mm -hmm. I sometimes wonder if it then has the opposite effect of people going, all right, our job is done. We've done the thing. The woman got the Oscar. So, you know, we're going to make less effort now because we have our one person. And I'm like, no, no, (laughs) that's one person. Now let's keep that going. So, yeah, I, I wonder if that also was slightly that effect of people just going, all right, we, we let one of them through the glass ceiling. So, you know, let's close it again. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I don't I don't want to I don't want to harp on this too long, but I always wonder that, too. It seems like every year since then, and, and this might not be 100 percent accurate, but it does seem like every year since then you get the Oscar, or the BAFTA shortlist. There might be two women on it. They don't get nominated. And. I don't know. I can see exactly why that repetition is so frustrating. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's also such a double standard because they always feel like if we're going to give you a gig that otherwise would have gone to a man, then you need to be that much better. You know, they're expecting women to be the next Mozart. While at the same time, we have a lot of male film composers and TV composers that write perfectly adequate music, but that are no Mozart. So I'm like, why do they get to write average music, but we don't? We have to be so amazing to get hired, you know, to be even considered. But then a lot of the guys, you know, they're not all brilliant. They're not all geniuses. They're not all, you know, the next big thing, which is fine. You know, not everybody needs to be the next John Williams. Most of us aren't. But so why do the guys get to be on a spectrum of... John Williams all the way down to whoever you want to put there. I'm not going to name names. Um, (laughs) But then women don't, you know. So I think we we really got to get over so many things here. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I don't, I I wish I had like something affirmative or positive or uplifting to to add on to that. But unfortunately, I don't. We'll just keep going. I mean, (laughs) what else can we do? (laughs) Yeah. Well, and and look, I, I do think that's one upside of the streaming services and the amount of projects going on at any given time is like the amount of indie films that like one seem to not, like you said, not have a, an issue with having women composers, but then also seem to give more latitude towards the sounds you can do as well. I mean, it seems like all the time there are tons of like really exciting scores that women are doing in indie films. So at least like those provide a a good opportunity to get attention. And if, you know, the big studios aren't going to make a change to at least have fans of it go like, wow, this was cool. Yeah. And, you know, those indie directors might also go on to do mm-hmm. bigger stuff and then maybe they can take the women with them. I think also in general, the streaming services, the newer ones are 
a lot more open to hiring new people. It's really the older studios that are still kind of stuck in their old ways from 100 years ago versus, you know, the newer services like Apple and, you know, Netflix and kind of the more tech company based services. They're a lot younger in general and have younger executives mm -hmm. with and, and the companies themselves have a very different structure from the older studios. And so they're much more inclined to just bring on new people, bring on new faces into their shows as actors and bring on new people behind the camera, new people in post-production and just mix them up with experienced people so that you still get the job done uh, and nothing goes wrong. And so they, they have a very different way of working and a very different concept. They also do their pitching differently. Hmm. Like they either don't have you pitch in the first place because they don't want you to work for free. Guess what? <laughs> Or when they do have you pitch and you're in the final round, they pay you to pitch, which really? with the older studios is like unheard of. They just have you work for free. So yeah, it's a very different vibe you're getting from the newer services, for sure. Well, good. At least that's one upside. And going into that, it, it's clear as well that at least the streaming services continue to get more awards recognition as well. Like it was a big deal. Was that four or five years ago when Roma, I think it won the best picture at the time. But then like you look at this year and All Quiet did very well, both wins and nominations. In one sense, they're no longer these outsider companies like they're they're part of the mainstream but doing things different in a way that at least it, it seems like, um, from what you're saying, from your experiences, is certainly better than what's been going on elsewhere. It's a different company culture, basically. So it's very much Silicon Valley versus Hollywood, <laughs> in a way. <laughs> well, and at, at least that's you know a little ray of hope. Yeah. You know, all of us, we will keep hoping that that continues, that things, although you know they might be changing glacially, like change a little faster and for the better yeah but <laughs> i do appreciate you talking you sitting down to chat with me for a little bit hopefully the rest of the day you get to relax a little bit i know that you do an unreal amount of projects in every year so <laughs> maybe you've got something started later this morning already i do actually <laughs> <laughs> yeah no breaks for me for now <laughs> i will uh thanks again i i do appreciate it yeah my pleasure <laughs>